0: Real quick, everyone. This year we are really trying to grow the podcast. And one of the best ways to do that is by rating and reviewing the podcast. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, help us out by rating and reviewing the podcast, and that'll help us grow and reach new audiences and hopefully continue spreading the important message of prevention. Welcome everyone to another brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And if you guys are returning to this podcast, then thank you so much for your continued support. We have had a lot of phenomenal episodes and a lot of phenomenal feedback on these episodes. So thank Thank you so much. And if you are a brand new listener, thank you so much for clicking on this podcast. We hope that this episode can provide you some sort of value. And if it does, then make sure to go check out the rest of our podcasts because I think that there's a lot of other value to be had in there. And lastly, we are making or I'm making kind of a huge deal out of this right now. And it's because we want to reach new audiences and really grow the message of prevention. And that is if you really want to help us out, whether you listen on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify Podcasts, go and leave us a five star rating and kind of drop a review of what you enjoy about the podcast. And it'll really help us grow. That's one of the best ways for podcasts to grow. But let's get the rambling out of the way. I am super excited for this episode because this is something that we have not approached at all, um, like looking at prevention. We haven't approached it through this lens at all. So today I'm very excited to get into it. So let's, here we go. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention, so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live and now here's your host Raghav Sharma So today we are talking about prevention from a completely new lens, as I was mentioning. And today's guest is Liaison Hoy, um, who serves as a research research analyst and data steward at the University of Chicago Urban Labs. And he pretty much helps support, create uh, data-driven solutions for public health problems. And you can see where I'm getting with this, where this is a completely new angle, something we haven't talked about. He spans and works in various fields um, using data engineering to help things like mental health counseling, environmental remediation with organizations in both the U.S., Singapore, and also in Australia. Um, Leeson earned his master's in computational social science from the University of Chicago and his undergraduate degree in psychology from National University of Singapore. Um, and he's currently pursuing a master's in computer science at the Georgia Institute of Technology. So, Leason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raghav. Happy to be here. Definitely. I am very excited for this episode. So for the first thing is kind of, I mentioned a lot of things that you do, and a lot of our listeners might not be aware of what that is because we're all kind of within this health sphere. So what do you do? What led you onto this path? And tell us a little about yourself.
1: (laughs) Sure. So thank you, Raghav, for that uh, really detailed introduction. (laughs) Um, So I don't... (sighs) I don't really have that much to add on to that. I can say that half of my day job involves developing statistical models, um, data analysis and visualization, and designing research methods to address um, public health questions. And the other half of it is in managing you know, the health lab's data infrastructure, the maintaining of privacy and security policies, and um ensuring that the lab is legally compliant with uh, with laws such as HIPAA um, that protect the use of sensitive health data um, and your other question was what led me to this path right? mm-hmm. so if I were to pinpoint an origin um, it will probably be during my undergraduate years where I I also joined a lab that focused on studying um, the uh, challenges of underprivileged, and um, individuals who are below the poverty line in Singapore. And back then, I was a psychology undergraduate. And because of that experience, I moved on to intern with the Singapore Prison Service. And even though I started out as an um, intern in the psychological services department, it was there that I realized that... um, Data is, is just so important in evaluating the effectiveness of various programs, be, that, be those programs like uh, um, addressing specific outcomes like recidivism or more like holistic outcomes like the health of um, incarcerated individuals. Um, because of that, I went on to do my master's in the University of Chicago, and that was where I had the opportunity to start working with the health lab.
0: Definitely. What made you make that jump from psychology to data and using data? Because I know you mentioned that you found out it was very important and kind of Mm -hmm. um, helping make a lot of these decisions. And I think a lot of physicians and other people in healthcare also realize that data is incredibly important, but we don't necessarily like completely switch because going from psychology to kind of computers and using numbers and all these things is pretty big leap. What made you actually take that leap?
1: (laughs) Um, that's a good question actually. I had a couple of mentors um, both when I was interning at the prison service as well as uh, in my undergraduate years that um, what they basically told me was that I like I could do a lot more with uh, with the skills that I had in programming and data analysis if I wanted to address problems at a larger scale. So back then my initial, aspiration was to be a clinical psychologist, um, mm-hmm. which um, in in many respects is very much focused on um, individual cases, individual clients. Definitely. So what my mentors said to me about addressing larger scale problems really spoke to me at the time. And so that is probably the main reason why I switched.
0: Sure. So you already had a background in some sort of coding languages and computer science. Yes. So I, I, okay, got it. I did
1: a double major
0: in right. okay. uh, media studies. Yeah. All right. That makes a lot more sense because otherwise you have to completely learn coding and all that other stuff again. So mm-hmm. it makes me feel a little bit better about myself too. So the number one question that we ask all of our guests on this podcast when they come on, given our name is what does preventive medicine mean to you? What does it look like given your role and your experiences?
1: Yeah. Um, from my experience, especially, I think, um, the idea of preventative medicine means the, um, uh, the development and study of methods that focus on actually maintaining, uh, good health and maintaining a good quality of life while also preventing the deterioration, um, of such a quality of life, the prevent uh, the prevention of disease, and basically anything else that can affect one's quality of life. Um, so, with that definition, I think this applies to anything from biomedical interventions to even healthcare policies, and even environmental design, like anything that focuses on pre and. Preempting health issues as opposed to dealing with it after it actually happens.
0: Yes, I absolutely love that. You mentioned kind of the environmental design um, and all those other things. And this is one of those aspects of preventive medicine that we typically don't think about because when we think of medicine, we're thinking of interventions within kind of the healthcare setting, whether it's a physician, a maybe like a dentist. Um, a pharmacist, all of those kinds of traditional healthcare roles, physical therapist, whatever. But we don't think of it from a larger perspective. And I like how you brought that up where you have the policy aspect, you have the environmental design. How are we designing our neighborhoods, our systems, variety of these things? And this is exactly why I have you on. So let's start diving into it. And the first thing is you use data to solve problems. How do we use this data to solve these problems? And what does that process look like?
1: great question. Um, So I actually think the power of data lies, you know, not really with the data itself because data has been around for a long time, but um, data has become much more important recently because of advances in statistical methods and especially like the computational power to process it. So one example, um, which I'm sure you're already familiar with is in um, machine learning, right? For Mm -hmm. healthcare applications. So for example, you can feed a statistical model enough images of like uh, chest x-rays and mm-hmm. um, uh, to use a very contemporary um, example, um, chest x-rays and maybe the COVID-19 diagnosis of individuals who went through mm-hmm. these x-rays. And you can teach this model to a significant level of accuracy to flag potential COVID-19 sufferers just using the images themselves. Um, so... That's uh, that's one really good example, I think, like how big data is really transforming healthcare. And um, to speak to your point about, you know, urban design and and preventative medicine, like another poignant example is when you're examining environments, um, when you're examining um, uh, various uh, aspects of medicine, like behavioral health, uh, uh, um, respiratory health, like you're not, When If you're looking at it from the urban setting, you're not looking at individual patients anymore. You're Mm -hmm. looking at um, groups of patients. You're looking at uh, these large data sets, right? And so many variables that you have to screen for. So um, to provide preventative solutions, you will want to actually identify, like, what are these variables? Um, What are the patterns across large groups? And the only way to do that is really to have the infrastructure to store large amounts of data, have the infrastructure to be able to process them, and to create um, statistical models from them.
0: So would you say the most important part of this is not necessarily data collection, but the improv, like the making statistical models and continuously improving them to kind of hone what results you want to get out of them? Because a lot of times we hear, like, you're only going to get results for what you kind of measure and what you analyze for. So is improving those statistical models the main aspect of this?
1: I would say that is that is definitely one of the main aspect the other main aspect that I will add to that is um, having uh, an appropriate data infrastructure so not just I mentioned storage but there's also um, uh, pipelines so for example are you even collecting pieces of information that might be important so if you're uh, recording data say from physician visits um, what 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 pieces of data are you recording? All that is important as well.
0: Definitely. And I think that's one of the uh, issues that we do have in healthcare right now where the data that is recorded is not necessarily um, going to uh, help physicians give better care It's kind of improving the efficiency of that care, whether it's like reduced number of rehospitalizations, um, reduced number of physician complaints, improved physician uh, satisfaction scores, all of those things. That's a lot of what's measured right now from what I hear of my attending physicians. Given that my position as a resident, obviously I'm not like as exposed to these yet, but that's what I hear right now. So it sounds like we do need to improve the kind of data that we're collecting um, between these patient-physician interactions so then we can hopefully get better results through that. And I I also hate to sideline you here, but um one of the other aspects of things that's like difficult in healthcare is kind of gathering the appropriate data and that is because a lot of people who are get who's like gathering data and setting these things up do not have a healthcare background. So they're kind of just looking at it from the business standpoint. So is there something mm. you can speak about there?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I would say that um, uh, what you said is, is, is' definitely accurate, so the people who are handling um, data transfers or even the storage of the data or like if 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 a researcher wants to use like a specific data set from a hospital for example um, Doctors aren't, aren't the main people who are handling this process, right? It's mm-hmm. mostly administrators, kind of like what you said. And um, they may not have the same level of training or um, familiarity with uh, the variables in the data set to speak to um, uh, uh, sort of the, the, the sort of to discuss with the researcher, like which which variables are actually important for the research. Yeah. So that's definitely a problem. and. It, Another issue is, is also that um, a lot of healthcare data is obviously very sensitive and is protected by, by HIPAA and um, individuals who handle these data sets have to be trained in how to ensure like, the security of such data in order for um, the data to even move between different mm-hmm. organizations.
0: So what are some of the protective measures that can be used for that? Because I know uh, HIPAA law is something that's very important right now. And a lot of people are talking about it just because um, with a lot of this, like vaccine stuff for COVID and whatnot, everyone just mentioning HIPAA. So kind of what are the protective measures that hospitals and these data sets use?
1: So I would preface the my answer to that by sort of dividing the motivations for protection into two simple points. So, um, all the protective measures are basically there to ensure that first of all, like no third party is able to misuse the data or to identify, um, uh, individuals based on sensitive information. Mm -hmm. And obviously the second reason is to, um, protect the organizations, which are, you know, the guardians of such data Mm -hmm. so that, um, uh, in case there is any, um, breach, which may not happen because of, uh, May not happen because of anybody's mistake. It could be a simple, um, as simple as, you know, someone sending an email by accident while attaching. Or, or a cyber attack. Accident. Exactly, like it could be an external malicious actor or non-malicious mm-hmm. actor. So, um, so all the protective measures are based on you know sort of dealing with these two things. So one one important protective measure is therefore to establish. Uh, secure data enclaves. And what I mean by this is say, say you have a place to store your data, right? And you want to do some kind of research with this data. Um, For example, x-ray images, as I mentioned earlier. Um, You want to make sure that the data doesn't move between different... I would say, like virtual spaces, as much. Mm-hmm. So, building a strong, a secure data enclave includes having the storage, um, the analysis capability, um, and the ability to use this data as much as possible in the same place, so that you can manage access to this particular enclave very easily, mm-hmm. right? And then, if you're going to protect um, this data, you only have to protect you know, a single point of vulnerability. Sure. So that is one protective measure um, that is really important. And that's what we try to do at the health lab as well.
0: Definitely. Um, so I think a similar analogy, what it sounds like, is if you have like a bank vault and you have all the cash exactly. in there, instead of transferring the money back and forth when you need to use it between like one bank and another bank, and you can suddenly get hit by a robber in transit, you store as much of the data in one spot as possible within that bank vault and secure that and just kind of regulate access to it. So it'll be a lot easier to do it that way versus just constantly transferring it. That's what it sounds like, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And um, an addendum to that is also... um instituting policies and um, making sure that staff remember that, you know, don't do things like emailing data to each other. um, Don't use your personal machines to process such uh, like HIPAA protected data, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah,
0: definitely. I didn't think we'd ever be talking about uh, protecting data on this podcast, but here we are. And that's why I love it because we approach it through so many perspectives but let's get back a little bit into the straight up prevention and preventive type topics Uh, we talked previously on another zoom call about uh, some of the research that you've done and one of those was in the cycling of the homeless population between a variety of areas such as hospitals um, maybe shelters or whatever their housing situation is and unfortunately sometimes jails can you tell us a little bit more about this project and definitely.
1: Um, I'm excited to talk more about this. So this project basically involved, um, as you mentioned, like uh, three different sectors. The um, And we had to merge data sets that we obtained from what is basically um, uh, organizations in these disparate sectors that don't usually talk to each other. Um, so the the whole rationale for doing this is that um we hypothesize that a lot of individuals um who experience uh, um, behavioral health issues who experience uh physical health issues um and also uh, at the same time are experiencing other kinds of vulnerabilities such as uh, homelessness or or being incarcerated they are actually more vulnerable because of the fact that um these... Things, while they look as if they happen independently, are usually attributable to various aspects of the person's life. For example, they, they just may not be born in into a very fortunate uh, 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 sit, a family situation, mm-hmm. and that um, um, that makes them more vulnerable in terms of you know when they contract or when they um, get a disease. And seek help, they may not have appropriate coverage or they may not have enough resources to even um, access appropriate treatment. And therefore, they end up in um, the public healthcare system a lot mm-hmm. because these symptoms keep recurring, right? And then at the same time, so this is just a hypothesis. So obviously, I'm not referring to any individual subject here, but um, just imagine like somebody who, who, um, mm-hmm. Is pretty desperate financially, and so they might, you know, um, commit minor offenses in order to um, deal with this desperate situation. And they get caught for it and end up in jail. And some jails, um, obviously, don't have the appropriate uh, healthcare services that this person might need as well. So when they get released from jail, they end up back in hospitals again. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to. Identify these individuals, and also to um, observe some of the characteristics uh, that these individuals possess that may become a pattern. and And the reason for doing this is speaks to you know um, preventative medicine as well, because we want to uh, pinpoint people who may be at risk of cycling between these mm-hmm. different sectors. And if we are able to get the variables that. Uh, seem to point most heavily towards them being at risk of cycling. Then that can be useful for uh, these various organizations. So when someone comes in, um, if they get this person's history, this person's uh, 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 activities in the in the past few months or even a year, they may be able to say like, "Oh, wait, you're you're kind of at risk of of so and so. Let us, you know, uh, provide you with with the appropriate treatment."
0: Sure. So this is definitely a very noble cause and a very noble issue and something that should definitely be addressed because even like as a med student, when I was rotating through some of those more uh, public health and uh, community facing hospitals um, that are maybe for the underinsured or uninsured, then you do see a lot of this. You see people cycling in between um, the jail system, the hospital system and homeless shelters, wherever the housing situation may be. Mm -hmm. And everything you talked about is 100% true. I've seen it. And The question now is, what do we do with this data? How do we collect it? What do we do with it? And how do we actually help these people? Because it takes a tremendous amount of resources and kind of coordination between these three separate sectors, as you were talking about, to get them to do something. And this is about also people that aren't necessarily going to advocate for themselves because they don't either have the agency, they haven't been brought up with the agency. They just don't know how a lot of these systems work. How do we use this data to actually help these people and prevent the cycling of this and hopefully the deterioration of their health?
1: Yeah. So those are two like very important questions. And I think especially like how do we collect this data? That's, uh, that really speaks to one of the challenges that we encountered during the project. So um, uh, with such sensitive data, especially the data from the hospitals, um, we have to be, we had to be extremely careful when when linking these data sets. So in order for Um, To even get this project approved and for the organizations to work together, we had to basically create a protocol um, that ensured that even though we're like sort of linking individuals across these different three sectors, no single person, including anyone who's analyzing the data, ever sees like the actual names of the people. Mm in the data set. Yeah. Um, and no single analyst also sees, um, identifying information alongside whatever variables are in those data sets. Um, we basically obscure the information through a, um, a computational process. Um, and that's, that's all I can say about it right now. But the, the key point is that you have to negotiate a way between the organizations, um, uh, in a way that is comfortable for all, all of them to share that data, and a lot of that comes down to just protecting the identity of the individuals in the data sets. And and to your to your second question, like how do we use the data, right? Um, so, one potential um, uh, use case that we're still working on right now is developing sort of uh, what we call like. Uh, screening protocols right so we identified several factors several variables several profiles of individuals that might be at risk of cycling so what do what do we actually do with that so now that we have actually have these this these factors these uh, profiles we return these findings to the organizations and then um, we sort of work together with them and try to develop perhaps like a new way of screening, people who, who actually enter these different systems. So now we have questions that we actually can target and and um, perhaps create an intake form that may ask specific questions that pertain to these factors of interest. And um, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but...
0: No, it, it definitely does. I think it, yeah. uh, it creates awareness for kind of where these people are coming from and what their circumstances are. Mm-hmm. Because when you go into a hospital, typically the medical history that a physician were to ask or any form that someone would get are not going to ask anything about, were you just in jail? Or like, where did you come from? Like, what's your housing situation? Any good physician should ask about like environmental factors like that. But in a lot of these screening forms, that doesn't necessarily make it to these forms. It just stays within like the medical history and the medical record but doesn't go to any of these forms that can be used for external, like whatever you use it for um, so that we can actually improve these outcomes. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at prevent pod, where we share various content related to each episode that you can share with your friends. If you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list. So you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. So we talked about one use case of kind of how data is used between a variety of sectors to hopefully improve some level of care or at least awareness. After you collect this and you have, let's say, that screening form, what do you do with that? And what is, how do you measure the impact of that? What does that screening form do and where does it go from there?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, with every project, we try to identify outcomes of interest. So in this case, for the screening form, um, an outcome of interest um, might be um, how many folks are actually um, taken into a specific, uh, uh, program or how many folks who have been identified for a specific risk factor saying, uh, say for example, like, um, having behavioral health issues for the past six months could be a factor. And, um, how many of these folks are actually pointed in the right direction? Are they given the services within say one, two, three months of their first encounter with the, with the, um, the contact person in the, in the social service. Um, so that could be an outcome. And then um, another way of measuring it would be um, actually looking at uh, whether or not individuals go back and cycle, right? Because that's obviously the initial goal. Mm-hmm. So we can do that uh, statistically. We can track um, individuals who are being taken in by these various social services. Um do a longitudinal study, track them from a, for a year, uh, two years, three years, and then look at um, uh, how often they actually re-enter like, these uh, sectors and then compare that with um, individuals who, um, who entered these sectors before the screening form was implemented. And then in that way, you can measure impact.
0: Definitely. So it sounds like a lot of this is the impact will be in the appropriate use of a variety of existing social services, Um, whether that's services that are going to help find housing placement for these individuals, whether it's going to be appropriate services that are for behavioral health kind of things and helping with those issues, whether it's community health uh, services that are going to be able to help them manage their health in a little bit better way. So it sounds like it's kind of the appropriate utilization is all those and identifying who needs what and getting that there. Otherwise, you're kind of just throwing things at people and you don't know who actually needs what. Is that appropriate? Yeah, that's right. Perfect. And so that's one of the things, but what about infrastructure? So are we building anything with these? Cause right now we're mentioning like using existing, um, services, using existing facilities, like physical facilities, or so what do we do about infrastructure? Do these help us build anything new?
1: Definitely. So, um, I guess you could say like the form itself is considered like infrastructure in a sense, like we are developing this, this new process for Mm -hmm. existing social services to use. But, um, I can, I can think of some examples where, um, uh, a new kind of treatment has resulted in the development of actual physical facilities. Um, Um, and one of these examples could be, um, Say on the particular form, we also um, ask for these individuals' uh, um, location or address, and um, in many cases, in especially with vulnerable groups, like the access to healthcare is very much tied to to um, their neighborhood mm-hmm, or the location definitely. in which they frequent, because as you. Are probably aware like neighborhoods differ in in, um, the amount of the accessibility of the facilities there and the cost as well. So if we find, um, so this is just a hypothesis as well, because um, we haven't, you know, we're still in the process of developing the screening form, so we don't actually know this. But say if we find a particular neighborhood um, that is being reported a lot on the form Um, as part of this at-risk population, we could definitely use that as a petition um, to the city council, for example, to develop new facilities in the area. So that's one way um, we might address uh, the question of infrastructure.
0: Definitely. And I think that's hugely important because Uh, what a lot of these places need um, to make these changes is overwhelming data. And at one point, you can like say, oh, these places need this kind of infrastructure because it's not there. But unless there's data and robust data to kind of back that up, people are more hesitant to make those changes and invest a significant amount of money, especially like in the city of Chicago, which is like chronically, we're short of budget. The city has no money. And it's very difficult to make a lot of these things happen. And if you just have overwhelming data that's kind of showing we need this, This is a significant public health issue. This is a significant issue that's impacting the health of many people. We can do a lot to prevent this, get on the front end of this. Then I think people will be more likely to invest in those services. So that's definitely where that data can be used.
1: Yeah. And and you could really get into the weeds of, um, um, when it comes to infrastructure, you can really get into the weeds of this whole uh, um, big data or data analysis thing. I've... I know a project, I can't remember the authors, but um, they actually use mobile phone geolocation data to track folks in a in neighborhood um, and, and um, basically see how folks were accessing um, uh, various uh, amenities, such as public transport. Mm-hmm. And um, they wanted to specifically look at individuals who were... Um, who, uh, who had some form of disability so and to look at you know the time taken to travel between point a to point b for example and and really like seeing comparing that between different uh, neighborhoods so i you know you can do interesting things like that and try to like compare say the accessibility of one neighborhood to another so
0: Definitely. And I think that's, once again, in, incredibly important because we know and we've talked about many times in this podcast how accessibility and ease of transport and ease of use of a lot of these facilities helps people to stay on top of their issues. They're more likely to visit a physician when they need it. They're more likely to use visit a community health uh, area if they need it, more likely to access gyms, recreation areas, all those kinds of things. So if this data can be used for that to kind of improve infrastructure, improve public transportation, that's hugely beneficial. And that's exactly why we have Leah on this podcast. <laughs> Um, another project that you mentioned previously in that, uh, call was that of insurance backed psychiatric placement and various providers. And we know that psychiatric care and mental health is something that's, um, hugely important, but there's like no psychiatrists, a lot of psychiatrists. I don't know if you're aware of this, but a lot of psychiatrists have like six months to like one year wait lists just because there aren't that many. And there's a lot of people who are having these kinds of needs. Um, so can we talk about that project a little bit?
1: sure um so the project i mentioned it may not speak directly to the problem you talk about which is the scarcity of psychiatrists yeah, in fine. general and, and the cost as well um but it does speak peripherally to it so um we have this project that's going on where we're trying to in, involve uh, psychiat- psychiatric service providers um and mental health professionals in um, what is known as the Crisis Assistance Response and Engagement Program, and that basically involves staffing 911 response teams in Chicago with mental health professionals. Um, so there, there is a, the ostensible goal, which is to basically um, uh, sort of address behavioral health-related 911 calls with Actual behavioral health professionals. Yeah, people who are
0: trained in it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but there is that secondary part, secondary goal that also speaks a little to what you just said, which is um, sort of uh, co opting um, as many. mental health professionals and psychiatric insurance-backed psychiatric service providers in the city of Chicago into a public program with Mm -hmm. the hopes that more attention can be drawn to this area and more funding can be directed towards that area as well. And, um, thereby, you know, potentially, um, attracting more psychiatrists, um, or more people who want to be psychiatrists in the future. Um, but, Uh, To go back to that project, um, uh, the project basically focuses on reducing um, potential uh, violent incidents involving police confrontation, especially in behavioral health calls, um, with the hope that mental health professionals are better at Mm -hmm. de-escalating situations, especially with uh, folks that are... um, you know, overtly experiencing a, a mental health episode, yeah, um, which may not be as easily recognized by um, law enforcement of officials who are yep. trained differently. Um, and so currently that project, we are in the process of developing the evaluation plan. So it is, it's very apt to actually talk about this project because we are... Currently, right now, in the weeds of deciding, like, what data do we need from this yeah. project? Um, how can we use this data, not only to spur on more programs like this in the future, but also to talk about. Um, uh, uh, advocating for mental health. So like what you said and inviting, uh, more public funding.
0: Definitely. So I guess this is a very pertinent question right now, and this is more so for my own curiosity, but how do you go about deciding what data you need and kind of how do you actually get that data? Because this involves going to the EMS like services and whoever is answering these phone calls, you have to collect some sort of data from them. And especially if it's like verbal spoken word, are you kind of recording these, uh, Dialogs and feeding them through some software and identifying what the topics are. How do you actually do this?
1: Great question. So, what you just suggested, like you know, actually having the the, the recorded calls, some um, interactions during uh, these dispatches, like we are hoping to get that um, from yeah. um, basically the um, the responders as well as the nine one one call center um, and the the fortunate thing is that we have worked with these organizations before in chicago so we ha- we do have a history of say working with um uh, uh police response data so we have um getting access to the data is is more simple in the sense like we just put in a new request and we say that this is part of our evaluation plan um but getting access to um what you mentioned, the recorded uh, interactions may be more complicated, and that's something that um, uh, we have been talking to uh, um, individuals with the sheriff's office, with the um, yeah, with the nine one one call center about. Um, to your first, uh, to your first question about how we actually decide what pieces of data we need, mm-hmm. um, we try to divide it up into. Uh, uh, Two main line, two main lines of questioning that we want to address. So, the first one is obviously the outcome of this intervention, but the second one, um, and I argue that the second line of questioning is, is almost as important as the outcome of the intervention is. Um, Assessing whether the prog- how the program is actually executed, so implementation of the the program itself, mm-hmm. so like internal evaluation. Um, so this, for example, can involve asking questions such as: um, Are the the behavioral health professionals comfortable with uh, going out with police officers in mm-hmm. these dispatch teams? Do they feel that they are well trained to deal with these high stakes situations? Um, these kinds of questions. So usually we start from these uh, uh, top level questions, and then we sort of narrow it down to okay, so if we want to really evaluate this, like what uh, what information do we need? So in, for for the for the question regarding like training, for example, um, we we could say like oh perhaps you wanna you wanna pull the training materials, you wanna pull. Um, uh, data uh, as to like how long this these behavioral health profe- professionals spent in in mm-hmm. uh, uh, dispatch training. We want to actually maybe send out a survey um, periodically to these folks to ask them: Is the training adequate? You know, on a scale of one to five, that kind of thing. Sure. So we're actually working on all this right now. So. That's a really good question. Um,
0: Perfect. And then I guess another thing for my curiosity, we were discussing yeah. earlier in this podcast how oftentimes a lot of the outcomes and a lot of the data that's collected, um, we need to make sure that it's clinically focused and it's relevant to what we actually want the outcomes to be. How do you make sure that the stays focused on this? Do you have like someone on the team that is acutely trained within some of these things and looking forward to and knows kind of what we want these outcomes to be? Or how do you set those outcome goals when you're working from the top-down approach like you were mentioning?
1: Yeah, so... Um, your intuition is pretty much correct. So we have, um, folks at the health lab, um, who have, uh, who have expertise in in specific areas of, of uh, healthcare research. Yeah. So we have a research director, for example, who's very, um, very much, uh, um, involved in designing, the the evaluation process from the top-down perspective. So like what needs to go here? What needs to be, um, uh, what models do we use so that we can draw the appropriate uh, conclusions? And then we also have a principal investigator on the team who is trained in um, uh, healthcare. Um, We have a physician, we have an economist, um, and they are the ones who provide input as to uh, which measures are the most important. Yes.
0: Got it. And now the last question I had on this project, and this is sorry for the listeners back home, this is all for like my curiosity's sake at this point, just because I, I'm trying to understand how these things work and how they play into kind of the bigger picture of health, because you can prevent a lot of things from just this uh, simple, well, it's not really simple, it's pretty robust, but um, from this one kind of piece of data collection, and hopefully if it gets applied, you can do a lot. Um, so, When it comes down to it, you are collecting data from like EMS, these phone calls. You have to have some sort of data collected from the actual interaction with whoever is having a mental health um, symptom, whatever it may be. And you also have to have data on the outcome. And you also have to have willing participants from like the healthcare side of whoever these mental health providers are, whether psychiatrists, psychologists, whoever it may be. How do you get them all to play together? And do you have to kind of disclose that all? Are they all willing partners?
1: Yeah, so... I think to actually pull a project off like this, um, it takes years of sort of building relationships as well. So we are fortunate in the sense that we have, um, we have long-standing relationships with these organizations. Um, we also have folks who um, uh, basically have networks across uh, the health lab, um, across, uh, um, the EMS, uh, uh, service providers, the, um, sheriff's office, and then basically it's meetings after meetings and, uh, co-opting more and more people. Mm -hmm. And I think the essential component is actually getting, um, a lot of the, the legal, legal documents drafted up, um, Mm -hmm. and that involves, uh, sort of, um, a statement of work which uh, lays out like how the entire experiment or how the entire intervention is going to be conducted and also a data security policy. Um, These two pieces are the most important. And once you are able to get, you know, all your various stakeholders to agree on these two things, then um, uh, that's where you can give the green light Um. Yeah but but negotiating these things really involves uh, um, uh, many different stakeholders. Sure.
0: It Thank sounds you. like a lot of work. And there's just so much that goes on behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know of what's going on. And either they will never, ever hear of this project, or it's something that'll just be going in the background and no no one will ever acknowledge it. And that's why I want to have people such as yourself come on this podcast to talk about these things, because they are all impacting our health to some extent or another. They're preventing um, maybe some unnecessary use of force on someone, which is definitely a way to protect someone's health. Um, So this is why I want you on the podcast. And one of the other questions I have for you now here is we've talked so much about these social services and a lot of kind of what happens. And between the lens of prevention and kind of acting on an acute situation, do you think that a lot of existing community social services, given that you have so many relationships, can actually help prevent problems from occurring? Or are they most active and best at solving acute problems?
1: I think that many social services, um, such as homelessness shelters, for example, they definitely provide um, a lot of acute assistance for a certain point in time, right? So um, uh, there's an emergency, someone needs housing right now, they can do that. And um, a lot of these social services are actually focused on that. So I I, I do believe that. In terms of preventative care, um, I would say that um, it is possible, I wouldn't say that they, they um, that a lot of social services have the same amount of capacity to provide preventative care as compared to solving acute problems. And the reason for that is not really, it has nothing to do with their mission or their motivations because um, you know, I've talked to many people in these social services and all of them would definitely, you know, agree with the importance of preventative care, and as mm-hmm. well as the fact that if, in an ideal world, we don't want people to come in at all, for sure, that that would mean that they have succeeded in in their cause. Um, but the difficulty in terms of providing preventative care is that, especially at the social services level, you are looking at a lot of vulnerable groups of individuals, right? And if you want to provide preventative care, if you want to um, sort of stop the needle before it even turns. Mm -hmm. You you have to identify these vulnerabilities and these groups of people even before they enter the social services. And to do that, um, you need information from elsewhere. For most of these organizations, they need information that doesn't come from their own organization. So I'm kind of borrowing the answer from like um, one of my previous answers to your questions um, about the whole like combining data from different mm-hmm. social services, right? Because that that's where the difficulty lies. Like, say for a homelessness shelter, if they want to, um, if they know like a bulk of their population are say like elderly folks who have a lot of physical health problems as well, to identify um, these risky people and to direct them to services that may get them to permanent housing um, in the near future, even before they enter like the homelessness system, mm-hmm. they will need this data, right from from um, the healthcare system, which is very very hard for them for them to obtain. So I would say that um, if we want to advance um, preventative medicine in the social services sector, definitely more of these collaborations are needed. We need to. Um, and and not just research right because obviously i'm from a research outfit so there's some bias to it. it's like mm-hmm. oh yeah let's just do a study you know like combine yeah. um get these institutions to collaborate but they also um i believe like a lot of these institutions also require um uh uh practical collaborations that 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 are organic that they start on their own and they talk to each other and they develop programs that actually um, our united effort instead of just, oh, I, I'm, I'm working on on this neighborhood. I'm this one shelter. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. First off, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Because this is exa- you're filling the gap that you just talked about by kind of providing data from all of these areas. And this is kind of exactly what I was thinking of why it's so difficult to provide preventive medicine at a policy level. Because you have to look at those vulnerable populations that are not, quote unquote, vulnerable yet because they haven't entered the system. How do we collect data on something from, there's no institution that's collecting these data on them. You just have to kind of get data from the wild. And that is where a lot of your projects come in. That's where a lot of what are, that collaboration comes in because it kind of fills in those gray spaces. So it speaks to the issue. It speaks to the difficulty of kind of implementing preventive services and preventive um, policies at that broad level. Um, I hope we can have more people who are doing things um, like you so we can do this because... I've talked about in this podcast previously, I think the biggest thing we can do for preventive medicine is not exercise and eat properly. Although that's hugely important. The biggest thing we can do is implement policies, designs, and kind of arrange our environment in a way that promotes prevention. And a lot of that's very difficult to do without the data. And that's why I have you on. That's why I've been chasing this topic. I have several other guests that I'm trying to get on to talk about this from a variety of angles. So thank you so much for doing this work. Of course,
1: yeah. And I totally concur with what you said about the importance of the environment. I mean, it's, it's, it's people's behaviors that matter a lot.
0: Exactly. Mm. And as we start wrapping this up... Our famous question is if someone asks you how to get healthy at a Starbucks, what do you tell them? But I'm going to modify it a little bit for you. So, in this one, if someone, if you become a massively popular, famous researcher, which typically researchers don't get that way, unfortunately, um, if you were at a Starbucks, someone stops you and asks you, how does data contribute to health? What do you tell them?
1: I would say that, um, especially in healthcare, data is essential in studying any kind of intervention or policy that's administered at scale. Um, and this is because um, usually when you implement a healthcare intervention or a, a project, a policy it involves a lot of individuals and it definitely involves uh, a lot of resources, um, time, investment, um, uh, uh manpower even, for example, the, you know, the project where we are sending in behavioral health professionals with 911 responders, mm-hmm. right? So that, is important in the sense that because there's so much investment involved and, you know, every investment is, is, is kind of, uh, involves a kind of trade-off or an opportunity cost, right? Like resources you're spending here means resources you're not spending somewhere else. So, um, and with projects at this scale, you you can't really afford to um, put a whole lot of resources into it and then not understand how these resources are being used um, if you're not seeing the results, you also have to understand like why you're not seeing the results. Mm-hmm. So this is where data comes in like it's implementation, um, so, evaluating both the outcome, but also the implementation is important as well. Um, just to understand whether your resources are being used well, um, whether they are going to the right place, if there are gaps, um, how do you fill them? And to answer all of these questions, you will need the data that's being streamed in whenever you're executing some sort of project. So.
0: Definitely. Without the data, we're going in blind and everything that we do should theoretically be data-driven to some extent. The interventions that we're implementing, the outcomes that we're measuring, how we change these interventions to have better outcomes, everything. Thank you so much, Lisan, for coming on this podcast. I found this greatly illuminating. I hope our listeners back home did as well. And if you did, then please drop us a review, share this with your friends and whatnot. But Lisan, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at Pod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.